the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. Ryan Nickham is about the best next-door neighbor you could ask for. He and his wife feed me when Becca's gone. They let me take their dog for a walk when I've got writer's block. Ryan is also filled with stories like this. Yeah, so I was an intern for this, you know, Idaho newspaper that had a small handful of readers in Washington. And so I was covering the Washington State Legislature for the 2001 legislative session. You may remember Ryan from Bedtime Stories for Wanderers. He, more than any other person I've ever met in my entire life, straddles the bizarre line between total idealist and complete cynic. It was boring. I mean... Government doesn't really do a whole lot. Um, a lot of it's just posturing. So, you know, sitting in the office interviewing these Eastern Washington Republican guys about, you know, the next farm bill, it just, I got kind of bored with it. And then l- luckily, you know, to spice up the session, somebody introduced a bill to make the cougar the state animal. And Washington State, it, we don't have a state animal. Oregon does. I think Idaho does. I think most people have a state animal. So some local school children, had to learn about how you know a bill becomes law, had written a bill to make the cougar the state animal. But at the same time, and this is where it gets dramatic, another legislator had a class in her district um, propose a bill to create a state mammal. And now you've got conflict, because is it a mammal or an animal? Because those overlap. And then you've got a cougar, which is the mascot for the Washington State team, but not the University of Washington Husky team. So now you've got anti-Wazoo. Oh, man, it was just, it was dramatic. And there's school children involved, and they both want their, you know, little class, like, you know, these third graders come in, they sit there in the legislative hall, and they're all excited, and, you know, and their, their hopes are being dashed because there's a rival bill. And it was, it was just dramatic. I enjoyed it. I liked covering that story. But at the same time, I couldn't help but think that these 60 school children from around the state were, you know, wrong. It's silly that these kids thought that that would be a good representative of the state, when in actuality, it should be the river otter, and everyone could see that. These kids were on an apple juice high. It was stupid. Washington State was in the middle of a budget crisis. They were going to cut programs for the elderly and the handicapped. Teachers were threatening strikes. The state got hit by a sizable earthquake. Bridges and roads collapsed. There were problems. Real problems. But for a couple of days, this state animal thing was what everybody was talking about. So Ryan decided to use his considerable clout as an intern for a paper in Idaho covering Washington State politics to get the adorable, rascally, and underrepresented river otter voted in as state animal. He was going to monkey wrench the otter to its rightful place in Washington state. I attempted by um, misleading the legislators and making up um, just false things to get the river otter um, put in as the, as the state animal. It, it goes against, I think, everything that a journalist is supposed to stand for. 
he'd go to a hearing on the state animal thing, and then he'd ask a question of a representative about the cougar becoming the state animal. The rep would say something like, cougars are great, let's vote them in. And then I'd say, well, what about the river otter? Because I heard there's a bunch of people pushing the river otter. And I'd start sort of, sort of pushing that in, so people started, would start thinking and talking about the river otter. And the rep would look at Ryan like he was crazy. But Ryan kept asking. And pretty soon, there actually was a rumor about a river otter bill. Then Ryan would ask again about what the representative thought of the river otter, and pretty soon, the representatives were saying things like, well, river otters are pretty clever. And that was fun for like three hours. And then I decided I needed to go further. And so I called a friend of mine up um, and asked him if he could just repeat um, some words back to me. And he said, yeah, sure, whatever. I said, say that, you know, my name is um, Berg Danielson and I'm the president of the group Friends of the River Otter. Um, it's, it's catchier. It catches you. I mean, people remember that. River Otter, it could, you could drift off and start thinking about muskrats or something. But Friends of the River Otter, fro, <laughs> people remember that, you know. That's how you plant these things. And I think the quote was something of, you know, hell yeah, river otters should be the state animal. I mean, they're friggin' adorable. And, like, that was a quote. And I sent it, emailed it to my boss in, in uh, Idaho and waited for them to call me back. And I get a call, you know, 10 minutes later, and they said, are you serious? And I said, what? And they said, friends of the river otter, fro. Like, you, there's an organization out there. And I said, well, look, it's a friend of mine, um, and he created it just for this. But he's serious about it, man. The guy is intent. I mean, I'm not making this up. Like, he really wants the river otter to be the state animal. This sounds crazy, but the article got published. He actually got a couple articles published about it. Ryan stuck to this, in part because he was entertaining himself, in part because it was his little way of pointing out how inane the whole system can be, but mostly he really liked river otters. Maybe it's an elevated sense of justice. Maybe it's the long odds gambler in him. But Ryan Nickham has always been drawn to the underdog. It's why he joined the Peace Corps. It's why he's a rabid fan of the dismal Seattle Seahawks. It's why he rescued a street mutt and brought it halfway around the world. And it's also how he became an environmentalist. It's how Ryan came to be known as Bean Sprout. Some part of me had always kind of... You know, sort of like the idea of sticking up for the little guy, you know. Kids getting picked on in school, I remember always like, you know, I remember my first fights were beating up some bully that was picking on some other kid. Um, so I always kind of like liked the idea of sticking up, sticking up for somebody that couldn't help themselves. And how are, you know, forests and ecosystems going to defend themselves from, you know, what we do to them? You know, they can't. So I think there was like some sort of like rooting for the underdog, which is one of the things I liked about sports too, was being the underdog. You know, I always liked being the smaller football player playing against bigger guys. And I kind of liked, you know, taking the side of something that couldn't defend itself, which, I mean, I don't know, maybe that was somewhat naive, but, but uh, I don't know, that was kind of my attitude. Today, Ryan Nickham presents the story of how a 20-year-old football and lacrosse player who loved nothing more than landing a devastating hit became a tree hugger, or at least try to become a radical environmentalist. Awkwardly. Very awkwardly. I'm Fitzgerald. Today, Ryan Nickham presents You're Listening to the Dirtbag Diaries.
College spring break. I was a sophomore. Cancun was calling. A good friend, we will call him Woodchuck, and I considered embarking on a traditional, booze-filled beach vacation. There was a very real possibility of seeing girls gone wild firsthand, but instead, we decided to become radical environmentalists. On our spring break, we would join a tree sit. We contacted the local Earth First chapter, but there were no tree sits in Washington State. But there was one in Oregon. Woodchuck and I hitchhiked south to Oregon. The Earth First guy had given us a list of places to sleep for free along the way. An animal liberation front house in Portland, an abandoned warehouse in Eugene that served as the crash pad for a ragged group of anarchists. At each place, we were greeted with suspicion and disdain. Apparently, we didn't match the profile of radical environmentalists. Despite sharing their youthful idealism and upper-middle-class upbringing, we were not the type of people you'd expect to become tree-huggers. Our families were shocked, to say the least. Until recently, we had both been college athletes. I still wore my football camp t-shirt from high school. The thing I liked best about sports was taking out my aggression on opponents. Maybe I should amend that. I enjoyed knocking the living shit out of people. Not exactly the ethos of peace and love. In the years since I'd played competitive sports... I still hadn't found an outlet for my pent-up anger. So what was the wellspring for this pent-up rage? My mother had long blamed it on the surging hormones of puberty. My teachers blamed it on bad parenting. Congressional representatives at the time would probably blame the gangster rap I listened to. I don't really know what caused it, but there is some restless, stirring force rooted in adolescence that makes you want to lash out at every countervailing force and it can take years to exhaust. But it wasn't our general desire to fight the power or our increased awareness of the disappearing wilderness that had converted us to the cause. What had changed each of us was a book. The Good Word had reached us through The Monkey Wrench Gang by Edward Abbey, a book the National Observer describes as a sad, hilarious, exuberant fairy tale. It will make you want to go out and blow up a dam. It was the same book that had inspired the motley founders of Earth First. My favorite character in this book was George Washington Hayduke a burly Vietnam veteran who measured distances by how many beers he could drink between point A and B. He found an outlet for his testosterone-fueled rage by battling to save the wilderness through brute force. The way he destroyed a bulldozer or logging equipment was inspiring for someone like me who taunted the recycling club at his high school. This vigilante spent much of the book running from law enforcement, something I could relate to since my friends and I had turned running from the local police into a recreational activity. The book was a gift from my cousin, a conscientious philosophy student and long-distance runner who always sought to upend my jockish ways. Though not much of an outdoorsman, I had grown up playing in the woods near my house. I built forts, climbed trees, hid from my parents when I was in trouble, and retreated there to find solace. It was home to a shed where I stashed my cigarettes and looked through stacks of tattered playboys. I always had an affinity for the woods. On a freezing March night, deep in the Willamette National Forest, Woodchuck and I sat around a campfire with a dozen seasoned forest activists. Thousands of stars blazed in the sky. Beneath it, marijuana blazed in a pipe being handed around the circle. 
As the fire crackled, the other activists spoke in reverent tones of the ancient forests surrounding us. They spoke of past campaigns to save the forest ecosystems of the Cascades from the greedy efforts of logging companies and the Forest Service. They spoke of their commitment to the Earth-first motto, no compromise in defense of Mother Earth. We thirstily drank the Kool-Aid. Having already been chastised for speaking when not holding the talking stick, we sat patiently awaiting our turn to assure the group of our commitment to the cause. As we waited, the smoldering pipe came towards us. A spindly man passed it to us with reverence. My friend held it in his muscular hands, considered it, and then passed it to me. The burning bud began to die down as I weighed my options. With no pizza delivery place for a hundred miles, I chose not to take a hit, and I passed it on without partaking. The ember died. I looked up in time to see the group shake their heads and whisper disapprovingly to one another. Finally, we had the talking stick. Woodchuck and I told the group of our commitment to defending these forests through direct action. We were prepared to be arrested for blocking logging roads, setting up tree sits, or engaging in other forms of civil disobedience, whatever it took to keep the forest from falling to the impending chainsaws. I thought we gave a fairly heartfelt speech that showed our deepest levels of commitment to the cause. Expecting a rousing applause, we were met only with awkward silence. Despite their small numbers and the tremendous odds against them, the group informed us, in the most passive-aggressive way of hippies, that, you know, that it's, like, really great for you to offer, but, like, you know, maybe it would be better if you took your enthusiasm back to Seattle to save the forest there. Cast out of the tree sit, we angrily replayed the three days we spent with the forest activists. What had we done wrong? As we sat awaiting a fruitless ride on the side of an Oregon highway, we compiled a list that may be a benefit to you or someone you love who is attempting to join a radical band of environmentalists. Mistake number one. Radical tree huggers don't use their real names. Instead, they make up nature-themed monikers like raccoon, dirt, and meadow. An activist named Huckleberry insists on this when we introduced ourselves by our real names. Mistake number two. Their chosen aliases were not a joking matter. When we started calling each other Woodchuck and Beansprout, they no doubt detected our sarcastic tone and took it as an insult. Mistake number three. The Earth Firsters very clearly enjoyed an illegal herb. No doubt a gift from the Mother Earth Goddess, and we had nothing against it. We weren't trying to suggest otherwise, but quite frankly, we were really just more the beer-drinking types. Mistake number four. I only offered to buy the group beer because drinking beer had proved to be a real team builder with my college lacrosse team. And I only chose Coors Light because it was on sale. I didn't know Coors made a lot of donations to arch-conservative politicians. I didn't consider their misogynistic and offensive advertising campaigns. I hadn't considered the term silver bullet as just another representation of the U.S. war machine. My bad. Mistake number five. In retrospect... We should have known that everyone was vegetarian. All the same, I don't see why it was such a big deal that I chose to supplement this diet of boiled potatoes and cauliflower with an incredibly delicious and hunger-satiating chicken-bacon-ranch burger from Carl's Jr. After all, it's a crispy chicken filet with melted Swiss cheese, crispy bacon, lettuce, tomato, and ranch sauce on a seeded bun. If they'd ever had one, especially after one of their many bong rips, I'm sure they would have seen the benefits of this processed but very tasty meal. Did I mention it comes with curly fries? 
Mistake number six. Our most costly mistake was asking whether the group commonly resorted to monkey wrenching, such as tree spiking or destroying logging equipment. I can see how that may have led them to believe that Woodchuck and Bean Sprout were just a pair of narcs. Cast out of the clan, we hitched a ride with an environmental scientist south through the redwoods. We told him of our rejection from Earth First. He shook his head. For the next 50 miles, he lectured us on the lunacy of Earth First methods. He encouraged us to turn to science, politics, or journalism to create lasting change. In the following years, our radicalism mellowed, but we did take away some lessons from the activists who rejected us. I quit my job at a steakhouse and even tried being a vegetarian for a while. Woodchuck pursued a science degree, considered using it in an environmentally friendly way, but then sold out and became a civilian contractor for the military. That's why I haven't used his name in this podcast. I worked as a journalist and even as a researcher and lobbyist for an environmental group. And aside from hurling tear gas canisters back at the cops during the WTO protests in Seattle, I largely washed my hands of radical action. Years later, during a lobbying trip to Washington, D.C., I bumped into one of the activists from the tree sit. He spotted me at a cocktail party where congressional reps spoke about the need for greater protection of the national forest. He came up to me and said, I know you, you're Bean Sprout, right? He was shocked to learn I was actually an environmentalist. Holy shit, you and your crazy friend and all your questions about monkey wrenching? Man, you guys had everybody freaked out. Everyone thought you were agents for sure. Standing next to the appetizer table, drinking a beer, we laughed about all the faux pas that Woodchuck and I had made. When I asked what happened to the forest we tried to save, he said he thought it had been logged. Apparently all the activists had turned on each other, and the trees had never really gotten off the ground. In the years that followed, I've often wondered what would have happened if the aspiring tree huggers, Woodchuck and Bean Sprout, had been allowed to stay. What would have become of us? We certainly would have dropped out of college since classes were beginning a week later. Perhaps we would have grown dreadlocks and moved into a yurt in Oregon, but probably not. It's hard to picture us eating boiled vegetables, wearing hemp jewelry, farming, and plotting missions to destroy logging equipment. I guess we never really belonged there anyway. Despite our misguided enthusiasm, I still look back on that period with fondness. In hindsight, I can see that my cousin, who gave me the Monkey Wrench Gang, eventually succeeded in his goal of mellowing me. My brief flirtation with radical environmentalism was the tipping point that sent me hurtling away from my puberty-based aggression. Occasionally, I still yell at the TV while swilling beer and watching football, but that's as close as I come to being George Washington Hayduke these days. Still, I keep the book on my shelf, waiting the right time to pass it on to the next woodchuck or bean sprout, in the hope that one day it might inspire someone else to stand up, no matter how awkwardly, for a cause. Ryan Nickham lives next door to me here in Seattle. Music today by Mo Runa, A Sunny Day in Glasgow, We Are Dios, Bear in Heaven, and Charlie Hunter. You can find info and download the tracks on our site, www.dirtbagdiaries.com. Support for the diaries comes from Kuat Racks, a small company built by two riding partners with a couple of goals in mind. First, build a better bike rack. Second, participate in the community. And third, inspire others to immerse in their passions. Check them out at kuatracks.com. 
Patagonia makes this happen. They participate in the environmental movement, well, a little less awkwardly than Ryan. Actually, a lot less awkwardly. Visit them online at patagonia.com to check out their environmental initiatives. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing. Follow your folly. It's not too late. The Dirtbag Nation could rally around this. We could come together in support of the river otter. We could make it not just in Washington State, but in Oregon. I don't know what their animal is, but we could change whatever that one is to the river otter until we're a nation of river otters. I'm Fitzgall. That was Ryan Nickham. And you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Oops, one last thing. After I'd rendered this file, my brother, Walker, he made the art for this show, and he turned the adventures of Beansprout into a board game. You can download it and print it out on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Check it out. I think you'll find it amusing. <laughs>